This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I welcome Danny Barefoot, a political strategist in Washington, to break down Joe Biden's victory and the issues that motivated voters. Can President Trump make a comeback? What does the future look like? We'll get into all of that, and I'll reflect on a most improbable campaign for the man called President-elect. And now, The Nexus. Danny Barefoot is a political strategist and the managing partner at Anvil Strategies, a Washington, D.C. political advocacy firm. He has worked on Hillary Clinton's 2008 campaign for president and Crystal Ball's 2010 congressional campaign before she became a television pundit. Danny is a graduate of the Georgetown University Law Center. Danny Barefoot, welcome to the Nexus. Yeah, thanks for having me, Art. Obviously, the election has been a very fluid situation for all of us. But as of this recording, Joe Biden is projected to win the Electoral College, even though it's questionable how many electoral votes he will end up with, since some states haven't been called yet. It is a very curious landscape right now, as the president has refused to concede and his administration is blocking any transition efforts. Danny, what do you make of all of this? Yeah, look, I think that, you know, the few remaining states that are, are left uncalled aren't going to be decisive in terms of, of getting to 270 votes in the Electoral College. So the election is over. Um, I think there's going to be a smooth and, and peaceful transition of power. And I think really the only effect this is going to have is just Joe Biden is, is going to have some delayed access to information. I think one important thing people need to keep in mind is this is playing out against the backdrop of two really important Senate races in Georgia. And I think absent those Senate races, um, you would probably see more condemnation from the Republican Party. I think you're already starting to hear kind of whispers of folks that are, are ready to wash their hands of, of President Trump. But look, he has a, um, you know, huge Twitter following, a huge grip on the Republican base. And I think they're terrified of what he will do to kind of meddle in those Georgia Senate races that are going to decide control. Right now, Republicans, I would say, are are heavily favored in one of them and maybe modestly favored in, in the other race against Loeffler. And I think that that is, is having, you know, a huge effect in Republicans speaking out against some of these antics. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's obviously that there is going to be still some turmoil for, for a while. Um, but this week I wanted to focus on you hosted a focus group that yielded some illuminating answers about what went down in the election. Can you take us through it? Yeah. So look, Joe Biden um, won the Electoral College and has a, you know, I think a somewhat impressive, uh, is going to have a somewhat impressive win when it comes to the popular vote, but it's less than everybody expected. Um, it's less than I think the Biden campaign expected. It's less than most pundits, pronosticators and, and pollsters expected. So we wanted to start to dive into to what was driving that underperformance. And I'm of the theory that I think it was probably a bunch of things. It probably wasn't just one. Maybe there was, you know, the polling was a little bit off. Maybe there was some late movement to President Trump at the you know close of the campaign. Um, but I thought the most sort of interesting place to start would 
be to look through voters that had told us in polling throughout our various polls this cycle that they were leaning towards voting Biden or likely to vote Biden. Um, and then follow up with them and ask sort of what percentage ended up pulling the lever for President Trump. So we did a huge um, IVR poll um, to all of the, the folks that we had tagged, um, Lean Biden and the voter file. Well, I say all of the folks, all of the folks in six key swing states. Um, and then from there, we got a subset of folks that um, ended up voting for Trump. So we interviewed them and pulled together a focus group of 20 of them. It was mostly white suburban women between the ages of 30 and 60. Um, and then we hosted an, a 90 minute long conversation, um, getting their views on the election and facilitating a conversation on what what happened? Why did they switch from leaning towards voting for Joe Biden, the challenger, to sticking with the incumbent? And what did you find? What were some of the uh, key takeaways? So I think there were a couple of things that I found to be um, really interesting. Um, I think one that that I didn't really expect were these voters tended to universally disapprove of President Trump's handling of the um, COVID-19 crisis. Um, but that didn't that, that that didn't prove to be dispositive for these voters. They also had some discomfort with the direction that Joe Biden may take us if he if he was elected. There was a lot of lockdown fatigue, even though I know that the United States hasn't really locked down compared to uh, other countries. Um, but there also was a lack of like the voters just weren't connecting Trump's botched response to the pandemic to sort of where we are as a country. There were several voters that said. Hey, look, like it's bad everywhere. Like, you know, Donald Trump's been kind of a doofus on this stuff, but it's no better in Europe. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I was surprised at sort of the level of sophistication that, you know, I mean, look, these, the voters we spoke to were a, a bit lower information, but they understood that the pandemic was a, a global challenge and they just didn't hold President Trump accountable for it to the degree I would have expected. So I think that was the first interesting takeaway. Um, and then we also asked folks about what their thoughts were on defund the police. Um, and there was a universally negative response um, to that. Even we had we had one African-American voter in the focus group. And his response was, come on, man, like you've got to propose serious solutions to this stuff and get rid of the police isn't a serious solution. So we let that conversation kind of go on. Uh, but it, it wasn't super interesting because it was just so universally negative. So we had the moderator explain to the voters what at least activists claim defund the police means. Um, cutting police budgets and, and reallocating some of that to social services. Um, there was universal support for that, but people were really sort of almost angry at that explanation. One woman said, don't try to tell me words mean something different than what they say. These people are yelling defund the police. That means get rid of the police. Mm -hmm. um, and people just weren't buying that that's what that slogan meant. So we, we when we asked about, you know, sort of you, you know, the policies behind the slogan, everybody supported it. Everybody agreed that, you know, there was systemic racism. So this group of, you know, look, it's easier for, I think, some folks in the Democratic Party to caricature Trump voters. And, and I understand that impulse. But this was not a group of people who, you know, sort of thought racism didn't exist or thought that we shouldn't address it. They just found some of the activist slogans to be unacceptable. And I think more importantly, they associated those with the Democratic Party. 
there was this this thought, even though some voters couldn't get specific, that Democrats hadn't done enough to condemn this, that they were, you know, sort of privately sympathetic. One voter said, yeah, Joe Biden said he doesn't, you know, support defunding the police, but he, he talks about it in a really kind of careful way. And I've heard him, when he doesn't like something, he finds a way to condemn it strongly. When he talks about the president in Charlottesville, there's anger. And I just don't, I don't see him as upset about the notion of getting rid of the entire police. And so you think that was enough to sway Biden leaners to Trump? I mean, I, I hear what you say about the uh, the pandemic and all of that, but was that truly a tipping point? You know, look, I don't think that there is going I think folks are really going to grasp for one coherent story of what drove Biden's underperformance. Um, and I'm, I'm hesitant to say that there's like one big thing. I think that this was probably one of many things, I think, particularly for um you know, suburban people that we, you know, which, which is what our focus group was mostly made of. Yeah, I think it was a driver of this. You know, I think that if you look at some of the debate going on in the Democratic caucus right now, you know, Abigail Spanberger, a representative in, in Virginia, recently got a lot of press um, for being really exasperated about the use of the word socialism and defund the police saying, look, we're professionals. We have to say what we mean. And if you don't mean defund the police, don't say it. So I think, you know, look, what I've heard from folks um, running for re-election was their private polling showed that these attacks were pretty effective. So, yeah, I do think that it was a, a big part of at least our underperformance in the House. And what do you say to those who would counter? Um, and since I talked about this with folks yesterday to kind of gauge their opinion, well, OK, there are some people who went to Trump, but this also galvanized a new generation of youthful voters does do you think that's holding any water um look uh maybe maybe there were some some young voters who came out um just because of this message uh, but i think that donald trump was the motivator there i think a ton of polling showed that people were were coming out against donald trump and i think if you start losing people in the middle that's where elections are are, are won and lost so it's it's great to mobilize new people we need to make sure that we're doing a good job of that i don't think you need a slogan um, that's deeply unpopular to to do that i think the movement and the energy around george floyd and and all of that that was that was super important um to getting folks out and the democratic party needs to be clear on where we stand on issues of racial justice uh, but i just view that so separate from from unpopular slogans True. No, I, I hear you there. Um, overall, though, what do you think? And, and I'm going to assume for our, our sake here, even though it hasn't been certified that Joe Biden has won the election. What do you think about the what's the impact of Biden winning this election? Yeah, you know, I think that it, it the impact is is going to be somewhat mixed, right? I think that Republicans have built in huge structural advantages in government. I mean, the, the electoral college is, is something that's been around since our inception, but they've also really stacked the courts with conservatives. Um, and, and uh, you know, look, they're not allowing, you know, statehood for Washington, D.C., and I assume they won't allow it for Puerto Rico, even though they just had a vote. And I think Democrats had hoped to sweep because 
they thought rightly that would be our chance to start, you know, even in the playing field. So I think, look, Joe Biden will stop us from, you know, in my view, backsliding um, further. I think that he's going to, to try to be a healing and calming voice. But I do think Democrats have a problem. You know, a, a lot of folks on my side of the aisle are saying, why are we, you know, doing all this belly aching? We just won an election. Like there's there's no need for us to be fighting. And my response to that is, well, we're fighting because in order to implement change, we have to win by more than what we just got. Um, it's great that more people want to vote for the Democratic Party than want to vote for the Republican Party. But the reality of <laughs> the structure in which we're competing is modest four and five point wins don't get us enough control to do anything meaningful. Um, right now, Mitch McConnell, you know, presumably, depending on the outcome of these Georgia races, um, will have complete veto power over President Biden's um, agenda. And I think that that's bad for the Democratic Party. What about the idea that Biden can use executive orders as Trump has been doing and get his way anyway? Is that even possible? Um, look, I think there are some some places where Joe Biden is going to like certainly undo some of the damage that um, President Trump has done. And, and I don't want to discount that, particularly on stuff like DACA. This is going to change, you know, in countless lives um, for the better. So I think that, that that's great. But in terms of getting really aggressive with executive action, like we have a Supreme Court that is, um, you know, six. Six, it's controlled by conservatives, 6-3. Um, and if, if John Roberts were the swing vote, I think I'd be a, a bit more hopeful for some of that. But but he's not at this point. You can lose all three liberals and John Roberts. And there are five rock solid, in my view, partisan conservatives on the court. And uh, I, I don't think they're going to let aggressive executive action Stand. So, look, it'll be a place where we, we can and should do as much good as as, as possible. And I would encourage um, President-elect Biden to particularly take aim at really popular stuff. So, you know, there's this theory floating around that kind of originated with Elizabeth Warren that we can use executive action to cancel up to $50,000 in student loan debt. I'm not sure if that would hold muster in front of the Supreme Court, but I do know it would be extremely popular. And I think part of what Democrats and Biden need to do is to start creating conflicts that if these conservatives step in, make them deeply unpopular. And that would be my advice there. Let me dig back down into what you were saying a minute ago about the party kind of fighting internally a bit, maybe not not heavily, but but there's already starting to be a bubbling up of tensions about how the election went and where the party is going. How do you view the progressive wing at this point? Do you think that they will stay on board with the Biden coalition that got him elected or are they going to be problematic? Where, where do you see them going? Yeah, I mean, look, I think our party has so many different coalitions that this is a challenge, right? You have the, you have the more moderate members, you have the more progressive members, you have the Black Caucus, like a lot of these folks have um, overlapping and, and competing interests. Um, I think within the progressive movement, it just depends on who uh, who is leading it. I think that, you know, folks like AOC have actually shown her she's shown herself to be really strategic. You know, the way she's participating in this debate isn't to try to silence the moderates. It's to say, hey, look, like you guys should be doing 
more digital advertising, regardless of what your messaging is. And that's, that's helpful criticism from the progressive wing of the party. Um, I think the folks that are going to be more problematic are folks like Representative Rashida Tlaib, who immediately tries to disqualify anybody from the debate. You know, she recently gave an interview where she said, she, or, you know, she was almost weeping, saying we were trying to silence her, her constituents who, you know, walked past dilapidated homes to vote for Joe Biden. And I don't find that that stuff helpful. Like, look, there's going to be a rich debate here. Um, and folks should come come to that debate with with data and good arguments. Um, but look, I think that Nancy Pelosi, um, has consistently shown, um, that she has a new, unique ability to bring this caucus together. And I think ultimately there's a lot of important work to be done. And I think while the progressive wing will probably occasionally be <laughs> an annoyance or a hindrance to getting some of that work done, they also bring new people and energy to the table. Um, and I think it, I think it'll probably all work out. You touched on Speaker Nancy Pelosi a moment ago. Is is she to blame for any of the House problems, the fact that seats were lost? And she, it, there is a sentiment out there that she does not have the magic she had 12 years ago or so when she was getting so much done and on fire in a lot of ways that her moment may have passed. Is that accurate? Um, no, I don't think so. Look, Nancy Pelosi has one of the hardest jobs in the country. Like our, it, look, when she was, a, you know, first became speaker in 2006, like the whole knock on her was she was this, you know, far left wing San Francisco liberal. Um, and I think it's a testament to how quickly the party's moved that now, now the criticisms of her are often that she's, she's too moderate. That's not Nancy Pelosi that's changed. That's the, the party that's changed, right? Um, and, and look, you know, she's holding together a really tough coalition. There are a lot of people with a lot of disagreement. Um, and I know folks, you know, want to cast blame, but I think it's, it's hard to cast blame on any one figure, including the, the progressives that I just took aim at. These elections play out against a, a complicated national backdrop. So I think that, you know, look, if you look across the, all of the districts, this wasn't one or two people underperforming. It was everybody underperforming by about the same amount. Um, you know, there were, there are little places you can disagree here and there, but, um, no, I don't think it's, you know, look, it, it's not Nancy Pelosi's fault that Susan Collins overperformed by, you know, I think over 10 points of her polling. There was, there was something off with the polls and that's what set expectations that we would pick up seats. And that's an excellent segue because I did want to talk about the polls. I mean, I I teach uh, political science at American University, and one of the courses I teach is on public research. And I feel like I am constantly, especially in 2020, I've been touting the polls that they got better after 2016, that repairs were made and so forth, that they are um, viable and we should be um, obviously having some skepticism. But for the most part, mm -hmm. I've been promoting that they're largely accurate. I feel like I am not going to be saying that anymore. And I am not sure what I'll be saying in the future. What, what do you have to say about that? Yeah, look, I, there's obviously we need to have some uh, industry need to, to do some reflection on this topic. I will say they're not they weren't so out of whack as to, to be hugely divergent 
from like 2012 or, you know, um, other years. But I think the problem is they were wrong in some places that got a lot of public attention, right? There was so much interest in Susan Collins' Senate race. Um, Democrats really wanted to take her out. And look, her polling was wrong as well. This was, you know, the way she was campaigning was not, <laughs> not the, the way that a, a very, uh, sort of competent incumbent campaigns. Like it seemed clear that she thought she was going to lose as well. Um, and she didn't. So that's one huge polling miss that's like very much in public view. And I think the same with Wisconsin, right? Like this is a key swing state. It's a state that was, you know, central to Donald Trump's front win against Hillary Clinton in 2016. So people are paying a lot of attention to that state. So when it, it polls are off by eight points, um, people are really upset about it. Um, but I think it's, it's really just a few, um, kind of unfortunate spots that polling missed. But I also think this is about folks understanding the limitations of, of polling. Um, there, there's going to be polling errors. There's going to be polling errors every cycle. It's frustrating that both in 2016 and in 2020, the polling errors were in the same direction. Um, and I think we need to figure out why that was. But, you know, I don't think this has rendered polling useless. I think we just need to, you know, both as consumers of, of polling and as folks who are using it to actually frame our races need to understand that it's just one data point. There's tons of other ways to figure out what's going on in a race, whether that's focus grouping, whether that's looking at fundraising, whether it's, you know, looking at canvassing data and like measuring how your canvassing data changes as you, you know, over time and as you use new messaging. I just think we need to be more creative about how we're um, how we're using data. Well, I want to spend a couple of minutes then talking about the other side from what you work, which is Trump and his campaign. And along those lines with the polling, though, what do you think about the eternal debate that seems to be happening now about the shy Trump voter and the one and or those who can't be reached for some reason by pollsters is is that accurate I mean it, it's starting to feel to me I've been downplaying that myself for quite some time but I'm really starting to wonder if there are people who just are not being reached by survey research yeah, you know, I, I think we need to learn more before I speak about it super comfortably. I know there's been some evidence that, you know, Trump voters aren't particularly shy. I know pollsters have been pretty skeptical of that. But I mean, certainly it's, a, it's an attractive theory because I think it puts kind of a, a tight bow on this whole polling era and lets us kind of move on. Um, I, one thing that makes me very skeptical of it, though, is there doesn't seem to be a huge difference Um and how these voters respond to IVR polls versus live polls. And look, I did a lot of work in the marriage equality movement. And, you know, you want to talk about shy voters, people willing to say they opposed gay marriage at the time where it was, you know, becoming, you know, like sort of a really important part of culture. Those were shy voters. They were not talking to live pollsters. And the only way we got to them was through IVR polling. So look, could it be that Trump voters just aren't talking to any pollster, even if it's, you know, the, the IVR, you know, automated pollsters? Maybe. But I think you would see some, like, noticeable difference. You'd get some of them in the IVR polling. So I think that, you know, it, it's going to be complicated unrolling what's happened here. I think folks like Nate Silver are starting to, you know, have that conversation. And I think... You know, my advice to people who want an answer now is to cool it and wait <laughs> and give give folks time to actually reflect and study this. And for our purposes, just to button up this topic, what is IVR polling? Um, IVR polling is when 
it's automated polling. So there is a recording on the other line that speaks to you and you press buttons to indicate what your answers are. And there's some evidence to suggest voters are more comfortable being honest with IVR polling because they're not talking to a live caller. So it doesn't feel so hard to say something that you may perceive as unpopular because you're not saying, I support Donald Trump to a live person. You're just pressing one or two um, in response to a recording. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Well, that's, that's good to know. And I don't think a lot of people do know about that, which is kind of fascinating. But uh, well, keeping the idea with Donald Trump, will he continue to be a viable force in politics? Um, I think that's up to him and, and up to some external. Like, look, he's, he's got a huge following. Um, he obviously had a, a stranglehold on the GOP base. But I think a couple of things complicate that for him. One is the way we treat losers in American politics, I think, can be uh, can give politicians a little bit of whiplash. I mean, Hillary Clinton was, you know, for decades, one of the more popular figures in the Democratic Party. And shortly after her razor thin loss um, that a lot of Democrats were privately sympathetic, um, you know, because of the Comey letter and Russia interference, she still took a huge hit among Democrats after she lost. So I think it remains to be seen, you know, to what degree voters will hold Trump's loss against him. So I think that's the first um, variable. The other thing is the, the president may be in some legal trouble. You know, I mean, in the Southern District of New York and, um, you know, with Tish James in New York, I think he has money coming due with Deutsche Bank. So I think the big question to me is, do his personal problems overwhelm him in a way that he just is unable to be a force in American politics? So it's possible, though, he could be the Grover Cleveland for the 21st century and run and win again in 2024. Yeah, look, I, at this point, I don't think we should ever, I don't think we should ever underestimate um, um, Donald Trump. I think regardless of what he does, he certainly will loom over the 2024 race. And you know, for for those listening who have no idea what I'm talking about now, Grover Cleveland is the only non-consecutive president to have two terms in this in this country. One, he lost in re-election, and then he came back four years later and ran again. So that's I think a lot of people in Trump Nation are hoping that's possible at this point if they haven't accepted his uh, his loss yet. But um, what has surprised you? most this year in the election cycle? I mean, there, there may be many surprises, but is there any one or two things that that just have stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I touched on this a minute ago, but I will say uh, Susan Collins' re-election in Maine, I think, was one of the more shocking political comebacks that I've I've ever seen. And not just not just a win, but I mean, a, a like solid outside of recount margin win. Um, I think most folks had had written her off. Her own party, I think, had mostly written her off. Um, Democrats, when they were counting their Senate seats, immediately counted Maine as a pickup. So I think that that was, um, you know, quite a shocking development. And, you know, I, I opposed and worked against Senator Collins, but I'll give her credit where credit's due. She pulled off a, a impressive reelection. And along those lines, you say you worked against her. What kind of things do you work on nowadays at Anvil Strategies, if you can talk about them? Yeah, yes. So we do a mix of stuff. Um, we do a lot of print advertising, so like political direct mail. Um, we do a lot of work in state legislative races, um, trying to pick up state houses across the country, some direct 
work with candidates, um, and then work with nonprofits and, um, you know, other C3s and C4s on a host of issues, everything from public health to, um, we work a lot in gun violence prevention, which is an area we've been active in since the, the Sandy Hook shooting. Hmm. That's, that's, uh, and, and I know you don't have a, um, crystal ball, no, no pun intended for a, for the candidate you worked on before, but what, what, what do you think might be happening if we were having this conversation two years from now, like after the 2022 elections? Do you, do you see any trends that maybe not being talked about that? that we're going to start to see coming into full borers there is this still way too early to make any predictions about the future no i think look there are three things i'll say about the future that i'm really interested to see if they if they play out does the suburban realignment where we are where democrats are doing really well in the suburbs does that continue or are republicans able to make gains now that they're out of power typically when a party is out of power the mass reshuffles because voters are, you know, much more favorable to them. So it'll be interesting to see if, if that sort of stays the same. But also interested to see what role Latino voters play in the midterms. Um, you know, we had a huge underperformance with them this cycle, particularly in Florida, but across the board. Um, I, I'd be interested to see if that continues to be a problem in 2022. And then lastly, you know, look, most of the time that the president has had a, the sitting president has had a backlash in the midterms. It's because he came in with total control, right? So, you know, Clinton, the backlash like took control away from him. You know, Bush, the, the backlash took control away from him in his second term. Um, ditto, you know, ditto with Obama during the, the first. I think what's going to be really interesting to see is, is Joe Biden doesn't have unified power. So it, that one, that's going to stop him from doing really big progressive things or big change in general, which tends to be at least, at, you know, at, at the beginning stage, just pretty unpopular with voters. He's not going to have that dynamic going on. So if voters are frustrated, it will be interesting to see if they put it so squarely on Democrats, like they, they previously do to the people in power. Hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. It's, uh, it's never going to be a dull moment moving forward. And it's, uh, and this, this whole divided government thing, I think is going to be fascinating for the near term. And that's if we can get to the near term. That's the, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're recording this in mid November. I'm very curious to see what it's, what the conversation will be like in mid December and in mid January. So, uh, we, we shall see how that goes. Well, Danny Barefoot, managing partner at Anvil Strategies, and you can follow him at Danny Barefoot on Twitter. Danny, thank you for joining me in the Nexus. Thanks for having me, Art. Have a good one. And we will be right back. Joe Biden is the president-elect, and to paraphrase Frank Sinatra, he did it his way. Let's remember two years ago what Democrats everywhere thought was going to happen. A Bernie Sanders-like progressive would be the Democratic nominee because, quote, that's where the party is at now. I put that statement in quotes because I found it quite amusing how alleged experts would come on MSNBC or CNN and assert with profound authority the Democratic Party had taken a hard left turn and was firmly progressive. Not only was the party that way, but that's what a majority of the country wanted. How wrong they were. Certain liberal or progressive ideals are embraced by many Americans, but some ideas are much too much for the general public. 
Medicare for all will not happen anytime soon. People don't want open borders or even to decriminalize illegal immigration. As Danny Barefoot mentioned, no one wants to dismantle the police, defund it, or even weaken it in any way. The progressive wing may be loud, but at every turn through 2019 and 2020, they were wrong. Let's take a moment to applaud Joe Biden for his resilience. Two years ago, he was as square as could be for the hipsters as the campaign began, but then had to fend off the fresh-faced Pete Buttigieg, the enchanting Tulsi Gabbard, and the stapler-throwing Amy Klobuchar. But seriously, there was a period of about a month where I truly thought that Bernie Sanders could be the nominee. Remember those dark days when Biden came in fourth in New Hampshire and fifth in Iowa? He was a national punchline. It appeared that this would be Bernie's Democratic Party, a socialist populist taking on Donald Trump, a populist in name only. What about the great middle of this country? Who would they vote for? Well, turns out Joe Biden after all. I started to see the comeback happening in late February when I was on a business trip to Ghana. I feverishly checked my phone to see the returns coming in from the Nevada primary. Biden came in a distant second to Bernie Sanders, but it was a lot better than fifth. For the former vice president, there was a peak of sunshine. And then a week later, the greatest comeback in political history since Harry Truman's come from behind win in 1948 began. Biden crushed everyone else in South Carolina, fueled by gargantuan numbers from the African-American community. Biden had stood behind the first black president, and you better believe there was a lot of credit in the bank for this Delawarean. Over the next four days, the most remarkable sprint to the nomination happened. Biden dominated Super Tuesday, and Mayor Pete, Senator Amy, and Elizabeth Warren all dropped out of the race virtually at once. I still can't believe it looking back. Suddenly, this was a Biden-Bernie race, and, and Tulsi too. Smoothly and confidently, Biden made short work of Bernie. Unlike the rancor of the Bernie-Hillary race of four years earlier, Biden strategically thought of coalitions. He wooed Bernie staffers and voters, drawing on them to shape his platform. Biden began courting Republicans disaffected by Trump. He shored up his credentials with the moderates who brought him to the dance and the black voters who saved him. You have certainly heard plenty about the personal adversities Joe Biden has persevered through in his life, losing a son, daughter, and a wife. How do you go through all of those things and not lose your faith? Ask President-elect Biden. He talks often about having purpose in life to navigate the choppy waters of existence. I think about this a lot as I navigate the worst year of my life. Losing my father to COVID was devastating, as I'm sure it has been for the families of the nearly 250,000 Americans who have perished unnecessarily. But I look at Joe Biden and how he has gotten through so much, and I draw inspiration. My dad loved Joe Biden, and our forthcoming president reminds me of my father. They both have that Irish wit and charm, and they came from the New Deal era, when government was a force for good and people in politics truly worked together. Both grounded in devout Catholicism and a sense that the best of America is yet to come. I think everyone, all political persuasions, should be inspired by the Joe Biden victory. No matter what you go through, no matter how the deck is stacked against you, 
you can eventually get to the top of the mountain you are climbing. It may have taken Joe until 77 years old, but he did it. People are already saying he doesn't have the Senate, so he can't govern effectively, or he won't be able to hold the contentious coalition together. But you know what? Joe Biden knows something about adversity and finding his way to the top anyway. I have high hopes for this administration. You should too. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We will see you next time and be well. Thank you.